Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. You can be opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be spending all of our time together right here in Mark, the second chapter. But I want to begin with this question as you're turning there. What's the worst job you've ever had in your life? Now, my guess is when I say that, there are some jobs that instantly pop into your mind. I worked the seafood department at Winn-Dixie for a while. That... That was pretty bad. And it wasn't that the job was bad. It's just you could never get rid of the smell. I mean, it just smelled like a fish. Not, it didn't matter what Cindy did to try to get those things clean. Uh, you, just, uh, you just could not get rid of the smell. But that's not the worst job I've had in my life. For me, uh, it's an easy one to answer. I went to church with a guy in Yuma, Arizona, who was a farmer. And one of the things that he did is he had an environmental company that I ultimately ended up working up at, uh, working at right out, of high, right out of college. But before that, when I was in high school, he also had a fertilizing company. So he would fertilize the fields there in Yuma, Arizona. Believe it or not, Yuma is known for its, uh, its fields. In fact, between Salinas, California, and Yuma, Arizona, per, oh, pretty much 95% of the country's lettuce comes. So just that's for free. I won't even charge you for that. Just, just some fascinating uh, things there. Uh, but, but so what, here was my job. So you have this tractor, right, that has these arms and these fertilizing he goes through at the fields. Now, what I had to do is get there about 10 o'clock at night, and my job was to ride with these guys to a field. Here's my job. <laughs> I had to hold a flashlight for the tractor who was fertilizing the fields at night. And when he got close, I would take that flashlight, and I would walk 13 rows over, and I would stop. And he would come back, and then he would go down and turn around, and I'd walk 13 rows over. And every now and again, he'd have to stop and go refill uh, the fertilizer. And so here I am, midnight, in the middle of a dirty field. Who knows what's crawling under my feet? And it was a miserable job. Let me just say that. It was absolutely miserable. Thankfully, it only lasted a few weeks, probably because I kept falling asleep in the field, and they were like, we can't trust this guy. And so that was a problem. But that was one of the worst jobs I've ever had. Let me ask a different question. What is one job you would never want besides a fertilizer flashlight holder? (laughs) What job would you never want? I thought a lot about that. What's a job that I'd never want? And I think if I lived in a big city, I would not want to be one of those parking enforcement officers. I don't want to do that. <laughs> All day long, your job is to give out tickets, fining people for leaving their cars where they shouldn't. Over and over, angry motorists complain at you, shout at you, curse at you. Don't, nobody wants to see you coming, right? I mean, that would be no fun whatsoever. But let's suppose that that parking enforcement officer was working for a different government, a government that you hated and wanted to get rid of. And suppose the parking laws had been introduced quite recently and people who had parked their cars in the same spot for years suddenly find themselves being fined for parking there. Pity the attendant, right? Pity the fool, as you know, Mr. T used to say. Pity the attendant in that situation. Well, now I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of Levi, the son of Alphaeus. What is he doing? He is 
collecting tolls at Capernaum, collecting taxes. Who was he working for? He was most likely working for Herod Antipas. And just for a little bit of history, when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided up between his three sons. Archelaus got Judea to the south, Antipas got Galilee to the north with some bits of the Jordan Valley thrown in, and Philip got the part we call the Golan Heights, extending up to Syria. And the border between Antipas's territory and Philip's territory was the River Jordan. And when travelers entered Capernaum, guess what? You had to pay a toll for the privilege of crossing into that region at the border. And plenty of people in Israel could remember when you didn't have to pay that fee, that you could make that journey for free, and now you had to pay for it. And who got shouted at? Who got grumbled at? Who got cursed every single day? Levi the son of Alphaeus, we know him also as Matthew. Think about this too. Levi bears the name of a priest, right? He has this priestly name, but he's a tax collector who profits from Roman oppression. So that means that Levi is a collaborator. Now, a true freedom fighter would have nothing to do with such a weasel like Levi who's working for the enemy. And yet... As we're about to find out, Jesus not only interacts with this guy, Jesus goes much further. Let's read together Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Every single day, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, had to sit there taking in the anger, taking in the resentment, taking in all of the complaints and arguing into his own heart and into his own soul. Imagine how awful that would have been. Anybody want to get up and get criticized and cursed at for your job every single day? Any, anybody want to volunteer for that? No, of course not. And then one day, Jesus comes by. And Jesus doesn't shout at him. He doesn't curse him. He doesn't grumble. No, he does something totally unexpected. He says to Levi, follow me. And Levi, we're told, no doubt with total astonishment all over his face, gets up and he follows Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you have done the same? I know I would have done the same. This was perhaps the first time for as long as he's been in this profession that someone had treated him as a human being instead of as a piece of dirt. And this, this is what we as Christians are called to do. I'm going to preach a little bit this morning, so I hope you'll bear with me. But this is what we as Christians are called to do. To treat people differently than everyone else does. This is the call on our life, to be different, right? When others won't, we forgive. When others want to hold grudges, we forgive. When others want to hold it against you for the rest of your life, that's not what we do. We as Christians, we forgive. When others walk away, we come close. And listen, these aren't just platitudes. These aren't just nice things to say. This is the actions of those who follow Christ. How are you doing with that? When people walk away from someone, are you drawing close or are you adding to, right? When others make fun and others tear down, we befriend. We don't join the chorus of people making fun and laughing at and doing all of those other things that everybody else does. No, we are different. 
like Jesus was with Matthew. We're different. We befriend people like that. We don't push them away. We draw them in. When others want nothing to do with someone, we invest. We invest in them. This is what we do as Christians. Or it's just, it's just a bunch of platitudes if we're not doing that. It's just a bunch of nonsense. It's just words that don't mean anything. Words on a page. This is who we're supposed to be. When others give up, we don't. We endure. We stay the course. We love people. And listen, if we don't live this way, or if we don't begin to live this way, I don't see much future for Christ's church. I don't see much future for Christ's church. Not only that, let me just say this. If we don't live like this or begin to live like this, it's likely we aren't really his church in the first place. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you today? And so let it begin today. Let it begin with us. Let's treat others the way we want to be treated from Faith Boulevard all the way up. Let's come close to those who are different. Let's befriend those who need it. Let's build up with our words, not tear down those who may not have it all together like we do, or at least we pretend to do. Because this is what Christians do. And I'm looking at you, youth group. I'm going to start with you. I need you to lead us in this. I need you to lead us in this. Show us what it could look like by how you treat each other in this group that you're a part of right here, right now. And I'm especially looking to you seniors. I have one of those in this group. I'm looking to you seniors. I am. I, I want to know, what are you leaving behind? What legacy are you leaving behind? What are you going to be known for when you're gone next year? Are you going to be missed? Are you going to be missed? And it's not just a youth group. I'm speaking to all of us here today because here's the reality. If they're not seeing it home, how can we expect them to show it either, right? But what are we known for? What are we known for? This is what Christians do. And so my challenge, not just to the youth group, who is the church of today, not the church of tomorrow. You are the church of today. So my challenge is, what are you going to do? Are you going to love like Jesus, or are you going to be known for something else? This is my challenge. Again, not just for them, but for all of us. And I know this challenge is tough. If you choose to accept that it, it may seem like a mission impossible, but it's not. All you have to do is start with one person. Just start loving one person and watch what God does with that. Just befriend one person who everybody else pushes away. Just love on one person who nobody wants anything to do with. Just be nice to one person. Just encourage one person. Just do something for one person and God will multiply that effort. This is what Christians do. Jesus has modeled it for us. How do you think those four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, responded when Jesus asked a tax collector to join the ministry team? Jesus was teaching them something important, wasn't he? Back to Mark chapter 2. I want you to think about this. Levi had been working for a man who thought of himself as the king of the Jews, right? <laughs> now, he's going to work with the real king of the Jews, right? And get this, when we do what we just talked about, when we do what we just talked about, when we befriend those and love those and come close to those and we forgive and we do all of those things, we're working for the king of the universe as well. How about that? You get to partner with Jesus Christ. Amazing. Now at the time, people back then did not see Jesus 
as a king. They didn't even see him as a would-be king. They saw Jesus at this moment in his ministry as this weird combination of a doctor throwing a party, right? Why did they think of him as a doctor? Well, that's easy, because he went around healing people. Not just those with physical ailments, not just, not just those who, who, who were, were, were outcasts like that, but people who were were social outcasts spiritually in every possible way. He, he, he went around healing people. Like the guy, the paralyzed guy in Luke 2, he doesn't just heal him from his paralyzed state. He heals him spiritually as well by forgiving his sins. So why a doctor? Because he was healing folks left and right. But not only that, why did they see him as a party thrower? And I love this. Because Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God like that of the ancient prophets, uh, uh, was a great feast to which everyone was invited. So Jesus is healing people and he's inviting everyone, not just the, the ones that, that had it all together. No, everyone is invited to the table of the Lord. And you know what? There are some people that didn't like that. There are some people that didn't want those people around. So they get a little frustrated at Jesus. They get a little angry at Jesus. Listen to this, verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, <laughs> Jesus has table fellowship at his own house with tax collectors. Wow. As he reclined at table in his own house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For Jesus to invite people like Levi to a feast in his house people known locally as losers, as sinners, as outcasts, uh, which again is an easy label for someone uh, to stick on people that don't look like them or think like them. But that was an outrageous thing for Jesus to do. Uh, the thought of the day was, Jesus, you should know better than to hang out with people like that. You should know better than to spend your time with losers like this. And so what is Mark showing us? Mark is showing us that very early in Jesus' ministry, uh, his ministry brings opposition. It brings opposition at every level. It brings opposition socially. It brings opposition culturally. It brings opposition politically. And most of all, his ministry brings opposition religiously. At every turn, he is bucking the system, right? And I have to say this. If we're going to follow Jesus, you can expect there to be opposition at pretty much every level. Socially, culturally, politically, and yes, even religiously. People, especially the quote-unquote religious, may not understand how we can accept those people, how we can love those people. And, and you know what? This next step initiative that we're working on that I told you back a few weeks ago, uh, it's going to challenge us. And I'm going to be honest, we're going to find out if we're going to follow Jesus and do what he did and love like he lived or not. We're going to find out what that looks like. But Jesus' answer here to the sneering criticism that he receives uh, cuts to the heart of the matter. 
Jesus says, I'm being obedient to my calling, and my calling is to be a great physician. You see, there's no point in the doctor only keeping company with healthy people. No, the doctor has to be associated with those who are sick. And Jesus' whole ministry... Jesus' whole ministry was to bring health, not just to the physically sick, but to Israel and to the world as a whole. But every time you want to bring healing to the world like Jesus does, that's going to involve upsetting a lot of people who are a whole lot more comfortable just labeling people and casting them away than they are in investing in them like Jesus did. Jesus' actions and his words ring out like a great, great bell into our world. And Jesus is telling us if we have ears to hear, the great physician is in and he is accepting new patients. He's ready to see patients. And he's also calling us to look at things from God's point of view. He's encouraging us to extend his healing welcome, his transforming party, wherever it is needed, to whoever needs it. This is what Jesus is doing, and this is where he wants to partner with us. This is what he wants to call us to. Think about something with me for a second. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and now Levi. These, since we're in March Madness, and I couldn't agree, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Forget Christmas, this is it right now. But these are Jesus' starting five, if you will. But as Jesus increases that five to 12, as we will see in a few weeks, think about the different personalities that are involved in that group. You have a tax collector who's working for the Roman government, and you also have a zealot who wanted to remove Rome by force. And here they are, sitting around the same campfire, working together under the cause of Jesus Christ. Fishermen, blue-collar guys, so much more. All of them find a home with Jesus. And if Jesus can take people from different backgrounds and different beliefs and unite them under, uh, under himself, then as a church, don't we need to do the same? In this church, we have... People who come from different backgrounds. People who work different jobs, different professions. We have lots with different beliefs, different political views, different cultures, and so much more. And yet, here we are together. Here we are together. What joins us together? Faith in Jesus Christ. Let that be the only thing. If that's the only thing, isn't that enough? And this, this is what we as adults must model for those who are younger. We have to model what it looks like to love people, all people, into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. How are you doing with that? In Mark chapter 2, verse 18 it says this Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and People came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Hmm. Interesting 
section of Scripture. Jesus, I think, is talking about the shattering new things that are happening in and through his ministry. He was, after all, announcing the coming kingdom of God. And in this section of Scripture, Jesus uses three images about the new and the old here. And it's kind of like a, a set of telescope lenses, each giving a slightly different focus. But when you put them all together, when you put them all in a row, you're able to see things a whole lot clearer, right? And so let's look at these three things, these three images, and let's, let's kind of take them in reverse order, if you will. Let's start uh, from the end. Jesus ends with this idea of new wine in old bottles and how what results is broken bottles and wasted wine when you try to do that, right? And what Jesus is doing in his ministry cannot be contained in the existing way that people were thinking and people were living. Jesus is saying, if you try to do that, you're going to have the worst of both worlds. And guess what? Most people are threatened by that kind of challenge. You mean to tell me that the way we've always done it isn't going to do it anymore? That's what Jesus was saying. The way you've always thought about it, the way you've always handled it, is not going to work under this new regime, this new king, this kingdom of God that's ushering in, even right now. It's not going to work. You're going to have to throw out some of those old ideas if, if you want to be in the kingdom of God. The second picture, the middle image, is about mending clothes a brand new piece of cloth won't do to patch a hole in an old coat. As it shrinks with time and weather, it will pull away from the hole and make a worse tear than before. Now, this image, you might be thinking, doesn't work quite the same way as the last one. If you just take it at face value, it might suggest you need an old piece of cloth for an old cloak. In other words, old is good, new is bad. That's not the point that's being made here. The basic point Jesus is making is new and old don't mix. And people shouldn't be surprised when trying to put them together has unfortunate results. Now, the first picture, the third image, first picture, Jesus gives is of a wedding. Right? Imagine, imagine this. Imagine going to a wedding reception where everyone sat around and looked at the food but never ate anything. <laughs> There's the cake in all of its glory and it's never cut and it's never served and nobody eats anything. That would be weird, right? I mean, what kind of celebration is that? And the point is, as long as Jesus is physically present, there should be a celebration going on. And so Jesus is doing two things here. He's comparing his own work, his public ministry, and his own presence with his followers to a wedding celebration where he is the groom. And he's explaining why this means his followers are not keeping those regular fast days like other Jews were doing. So let's... Let's look closer here because I think this is good. In that day and age, the main time when Jews of Jesus' day fasted were on days that reminded them of great disasters of old. So when a tragedy struck Israel, they would fast on that day to remember Right? And so, for example, the temple's destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And on the day that happened, they would spend time praying and fasting to remember the consequences of their rebellion. 
So this is one of the reasons they fast, to remember the consequences of their actions. Not only that, back then, people would also fast because they thought it would help ward off demons, evil spirits, and things of that nature. And uh, for a whole, there are a whole lot more reasons, but here's a third. They would also fast to try to get God to de- bestow some good that he might otherwise have withheld from them. Okay? So three reasons why they fast, to remember rebellious times, number two, because they wanted to ward off demons, and number three, they wanted to get God to give them something that they may not have otherwise gotten. But Jesus, think about this, Jesus is bringing this time of restoration, of new life, of a new start for which Israel had longed. Jesus was bringing into being the reality to which the temple had once been a great signpost, God's sovereign and saving presence with his people. So listen. Why do you need to fast to ward off demons when you have Jesus who's driving them out? Why do you need to fast to to get some good that might otherwise be withheld when Jesus, God's greatest gift to mankind, God's greatest good is right there with you? Why would you need to fast? You wouldn't. And that's the point that Jesus is making. This was a time not for looking backwards to the great things. Uh, This was not a time for looking backwards, but for looking forward to the great things God was beginning to do, not backwards to the time when Israel had been punished for her failures and sins. All right, let's put this all together and wrap it up. Two lessons that I think we can get from this section of Scripture that I think are critical. Here's the first. Jesus is creating... A a, a whole new playing field. Coming into the world like he did, doing what he does, he's creating a completely new playing field. And and I just want to say this, as we think about this new playing field that Jesus is making. You cannot win people you're not willing to eat with. And the point is, those old categories by which sinners are classified are breaking down with the coming ministry and kingdom of God. No longer are the righteous those who scrupulously obey traditions derived from their interpretation of the law. No. You see, for years, the righteous made the test, graded it themselves, gave themselves an A, and flunked everyone else. And Jesus says that old way of thinking isn't going to work. He tosses out that ridiculousness. He throws it out and says, you're just as much a sinner as anyone else. The issue now is whether or not someone accepts or rejects the good news, someone follows or rejects Jesus. Because Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. And what Jesus is getting us to understand is that there's no one righteous to call. There's no one righteous to call. All, including the inner circle of disciples who followed Jesus Christ, all his ministry have fallen short of the glory of God. And I want to say this, we have got to guard against the attitude of the Pharisee. We have got to guard against the attitude of the Pharisee. We've got to guard against this inward-focused arrogance that says God is only interested in people just like us. I heard a short, short poem. 
that I think describes the Pharisees' attitude well, and God forbid that it describes any of us. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We can't have heaven crammed. God forbid. The direction of Jesus' ministry is downward and outward. And it implies that the church must bring Jesus to people, not just people to Jesus. We must make reaching people our priority. We want all people to come. And we certainly cannot be the people who are taking down the sign that says everyone is invited to the table of God. That can't be us. That old way of thinking, that old wine cannot mix with the new wineskin. Jesus' new playing field, his new way of thinking has no room for that kind of thinking and that kind of nonsense. Everyone is welcome to the table of God. Regardless of their past, regardless of their mistakes, regardless of their sins, God welcomes all to his table and his church must do the same or lose her status as his church. Here's the second thing. Oh, I've got to kind of change gears here. <laughs> Joy. Joy. Joy must define us. Joy must define the people of God. Can we speak honestly? You say, is there any other way to speak? I think one of the schemes of the devil is to try to take away our joy as the people of God. John 10 says he wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Has he succeeded? Has he succeeded here at the Beltline Church of Christ in taking away our joy? Oh, we can blame it on COVID our day, all day long. Or we can blame it on whatever we want. But I want you to ask yourself, does joy define your walk with God? It's a great question. You excited about being a Christian? As Brother Baggett would say, are you excited about living? And at peace about dying? Are you excited? Or has this become drudgery? I guess I'll go because that's what we do on Sunday. Something's wrong with that picture. Are we going through the motions or are we truly excited and joyful about being a follower of Jesus and coming together as a church body? I look around. And I see churches all over this world that are growing and that are flourishing. And it seems to me that one of the common denominators in those churches is joy. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is also very prevalent in those churches that are growing. Can I say sometimes that I think we are scared to truly show joy when we come together. To laugh, to rejoice, to smile, to show emotion at all, that is often looked at with rolled eyes and crossed arms. 
And I just want to tell you, that old way of thinking cannot mix with the new joy that Jesus brings. That old wine skin needs to be thrown out so that the new wine of the presence of Jesus, this new playing field that he's bringing in, can flourish. So here's my prayer. My prayer is that we are going to hunger to be with Jesus Christ, and we are going to be hungry to be together as his people, that we would anxiously anticipate the next service, that we wouldn't miss it for the world, that we have to turn the lights off on people because they can't get enough of their time together with each other and the Lord. And then my prayer is that this fellowship and joy would spill over from this place into our homes, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our sports courts, and, and, and everywhere. We would be known, not as people that have everything all together, not as people that, uh, that are happy because we got something, but that we would be known as a people of joy regardless of what's going on around us. That's my prayer. God wants to do a new work in us. Do you believe that this morning? One of you does, great. God wants to do a new work in us. But what we have to do is we've got to bring him new containers that he can use for his glory and for his purposes. Let's not just say we're Christians. Let's be Christians. Let's reach to those that nobody else will. Let's stop making fun of those that aren't like us. Let's draw them in. Let's be known as a people who love, not as a people who are driving away. Let's be known as a people who forgive. Let's be known by these things that Jesus was known for by his interaction with Levi. And then let's, let's, just, show, let's just show that joy every opportunity we get. And when someone walks in overjoyed, please don't quench that spirit. Because that is the spirit of God working in and through someone. And who are you to quench that spirit of joy? There it is. It's yours. Do with it what you will. I'm glad you're here. If we can pray for you, if we can help you, if you need to uh, start your walk with God today, we pray that today will be the day you take that step. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.